Welcome to Better Than Nothing. I'm Ken Root, a veteran of agricultural journalism. I grew up on an Oklahoma farm in the 1950s, attended Oklahoma State University for four and a half years, and graduated in 1972. I taught vocational agriculture for a brief period, and then I found my calling in radio and television farm news broadcasting. I've done other things along the way, But I've lived an exciting life that allowed me to make many friends. Better Than Nothing is my self-deprecating way of saying what you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. If you wish to comment on this podcast, send an email to ken at betterthannothing.com. Nothing is spelled N-U-T-H-I-N. If you're still here at the end, I'll give you that email address again. God bless you for giving this podcast a listen. I'm attempting to find friends of mine, they're very few in number, talk to them about things that uh, are interesting to me and about their lives and the intersection we've had in our lives and the things generally in agriculture that have uh, progressed that both of us are interested in. The man I'm going to talk to today, I met in 1974. At that point, he was a good-looking radio and TV farm broadcaster with a great voice from St. Joe, Missouri, and uh, he could do everything better than I could. I was just uh, in awe of him, and I've remained that way, but through the years, we have been compatriots in a number of areas, and although I was the first host of AgriShop Saturday morning, on KFEQ in St. Joe, and a number of other stations that didn't have anything better to run. It should have been called better than nothing. Uh-uh. Uh, I wound up turning the show over to Gene, and he made it into a real program. So would you please join me in welcoming Gene Millard, now retired, past farm broadcaster and general manager of KFEQ in St. Joe, Missouri, along with an arm-long list of other titles. Gene, a pleasure to talk to you today. Well, it's great to hear your voice, Ken. It's been uh, many years down the road since our first meeting. Yeah, I uh, I still think of all the things that have gone on in that length of time, but I like to talk even more broadly than that. And since you're a farmer, I guess you've always farmed, haven't you? Uh, I just never could get away from it. It's a terrible addiction. <laughs> Well, not the way you do it. Um, you're in Missouri. Yes. Uh, and uh, is your son farming with you now? Yes. My son is farming full-time. He's the uh, chief administrator, and and uh, I'm the gopher. I go for this and go for that, you know, mm-hmm. so uh, it works out pretty well. He's, he's staying very, very busy right now and trying to get ready for the planting season and uh, getting some grain hauled in the meantime. Well, you... Uh have been very aligned with everything in agriculture that exists in the moment, planning for the future. You're excellent with finances as well. You've helped the Farm Broadcaster Organization greatly in in their investments. But 
You also, I think, are a historian of agricultural machinery. And I think we have a lot of people who would like to hear a little bit about that. I look at it that there was an era when man was struggling to survive and the agrarian societies realized they could stay in one spot. So they moved from hunter-gatherers to farmers, but they couldn't produce very much because everything they did was done in such a precarious manner that their productivity was low, the amount of land they could till was very low, everything was by the sweat of their brow. And then as we moved into the industrial age of the 19th century, people in agriculture were no different than those in any other area that they looked for mechanization to improve their capabilities. And the first one that we generally know of was Cyrus McCormick, who invented a reaper that would basically cut and bundle grain that was ripe and put it in a place in the field where it could be ripened further and then later threshed. And of course, John Deere in 1837 invented what is now the plow of the modern era. Do you think those were some of the more instrumental people in our historical advancement of mechanized agriculture? Well, absolutely, because, you know, the key element that uh, was engaged there is you had to have a seedbed in order for something to uh, grow and reproduce. And because that's what you're really shooting for is is to actually harvest more than you plant. And uh, it took, you know, some tillage at that point in time. And I'm sure they didn't have as many weeds as we do today, but there there still was always something to compete, even back in biblical times. You know, they talked about, you know, the tares out there in the, in the field. So uh, if weeds have been with us, I think, forever, probably will be forever. And, uh, you know, those are some of the things that, that uh, you know, got, got the uh, innovation of agriculture and production agriculture where you could feed more than yourself uh, down the road. The reaper, no doubt, that was a major, major enhancement from going out and trying to cut a few little, uh, sheaves with a with a scythe, hand scythe, and believe it or not, Ken, I remember one of those reapers in function when I was a kid. Had a next door neighbor that had a had a binder, and he went out and bound up his wheat and put it in shocks, and then believe it or not, he had a little international three foot combine behind his eight N Ford tractor, and he would pull up to each shock, thrash each one. And the hopper on that little combine probably held maybe 15 bushels. So, you know, it's a long ways from there, but it was a step in the right direction. Isn't it, though, amazing that you and I have seen some of this history in action? And I recall going to the old Threshers reunion in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, and the man who since passed, who was head of it, he said, The oldest person here was only a child the last time this machine was in the field. That's right. So now we've moved ahead of that to generations who really have no concept of how it all worked. But yet, I do think we can go backward. And it was simple machinery in its own way. 
but it was difficult machinery to get to operate. And probably the, the greatest harassment of my life was trying to run some of that machinery of the 1950s and 60s. And we continue to move ahead with it, but I do think it's worth talking about it in what it was and what the concept was, because most everything we have today was built off those early platforms. Well, it was, but the, the real significant change happened, Ken, I believe in about 1950, uh, 51, when hydraulics became mm-hmm. uh, a popular addition to a farm tractor. Uh, before that time, everything everything was literally mechanical, where you had a chain drive off of a whip sprocket on a wheel or something of that nature uh, in order to, for the, the machine to function. And even the old, the old binders, you know, they ran off of a chain drive off the wheel, as it turned. And so we migrated from that to hydraulic pressure. And our first uh, new farm tractor that my dad bought in 1959, or excuse me, 1949, skipped a decade there, it did not have any hydraulics. It had a power lift that would lift the cultivator up and down, but it had no remote hydraulics. But our next door neighbor, you know, he bought a new M Farmall and it had hydraulics. And I thought, what a wonderful thing that is. You could just push a button. And the, the machine went up and down. Would you look at the 20th century and tell me who the people and the companies were that you think were most innovative in achieving that type of machinery, bringing it all the way to production agriculture in the field? Well, there's had to be two or three that uh, were always competing for the marketplace. Uh, my grandfather, his first uh, tractor was a Fordson. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it was, uh, it was pretty, it was pretty basic. Let me put it that way. I'm not sure it stuck around for a long time, but it, it is next migration was to a John Deere, a, a 1939, a on lug steel wheels. And he was still using that to cultivate corn when I was a kid up and then up until 1951 or two, he still used that 39, a to cultivate corn. John Deere was definitely in the running there, but, you know, that two-cylinder putt, 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 putt uh, really got on a lot of people's nerves, I think. Either you loved them or hated them. Well, it, and, def- uh, it deafened a lot of people. I yeah, that. that's, right. that's right. Hearing have <laughs> to be a distant thing. International Harvester came on the scene with uh, a lot of innovations, I believe, uh, in those days. Case was in that mix uh, early on, and... Uh, you know, it, it Ferguson uh, was probably an innovator in many respects because the Ferguson system for a three-point hitch uh, behind the little uh, Ferguson tractor uh, that Ford and Ferguson uh, really developed and exploited. Uh, there had to be literally millions of those little uh, 30, 25, 30 horsepower tractors with three-point hitch. Well, that was a major innovation, and it took a while before really some of the others adopted that technology. But it became really efficient in getting, you know, various tools and equipments into into function. There was the challenge of moving from horses to tractors, and uh, that happened really just at the beginning of our lifetimes. Right. Do you recall people who... uh, 
who had horse-drawn machinery that they pulled behind the tractor? Uh, oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, we had a manure spreader that uh, my grandfather bought new, and it was horse-drawn, uh, but we converted it with a tongue, and uh, you could pull it behind a little Dan Ford tractor. Uh, it still had the seat on it, but I don't think anybody ever rode the seat after that day when we put the uh, shorter tongue on uh, so it could be pulled with a farm tractor. You know, the manure spreader um, certainly has been the butt of many jokes. You know, they said uh, it's the only machine that John Deere would not stand behind. Exactly. Uh, and I've seen them in parades and it, the handle there, it said, pull this handle for a message from Washington. <laughs> right. Ken, one of our one of our guys that were a regular caller on AgriShop from out in uh, southwestern South Dakota, we called him South Dakota Roy, and he has developed a full time avocation, I think, now in restoring John Deere manure spreaders. <laughs> he has at least three under reconstruction right now. He <laughs> sent me a picture here last week. Well, I think that they can make a political statement without making a political statement. And they are a machine that did a job. You know, look at the, oh, yeah. at the look at the fork and loading the trailer, hauling it to the field, unloading it. A manure spreader didn't make that job any more pleasant, but it made it a lot more doable. Exactly. I, I always regretted, uh, you know, or hated to think about about the second or third week in March. Every year when we had to clean out the chicken house mm. and uh, that was all hand labor and it, uh, it was rather aromatic. Let me put it that way. <laughs> uh, and, but that, uh, that, uh, that pool type manure spreader, you know, handled the job and it made it a lot of good corn. I want to tell you a story. And if you have one to uh, reciprocate, please don't hesitate. But my father was born in 1907 he went through the era of strictly hand labor. They then picked up, uh, you know, they farmed with horses. Then they picked up tractors and they moved on. But they were poor folks with poor ways, as he would say. And we lived in Oklahoma, which had the worst of the worst in the 1930s. He and my mother married in 29, had three kids in the 1930s. And all the machinery that they had in 1939 was the same that they had in 1929. Right. It was just worn out. But he kept in a lot of this stuff through my childhood. And one of the things he kept was a dirt-moving machine that he called a Fresno. Do you know the terminology or this Fresno machine company making a dirt-moving machine? I, I'm not familiar with that one. My grandfather had what we call a slip that he yep. pulled with horses. Yeah. Was that a later version? <laughs> yeah, a slip was the first version. And my dad said two horses with a slip could kill a man because yeah. you had to pick up the dirt with this small unit that had two handles on it and metal in front that was curved and you loaded it. And then you had to pick it up actually to dump it. Well, the Fresno was the next generation and he said, a man with a Fresno could kill two horses. And so it, it had a great deal more power, uh, more capacity, uh, but it was all mechanical. It was just uh, two rocker arms, basically, with a blade in between them. 
and a little area that was probably a third of a yard, maybe a half a yard, but not any more than that, that would load. And then you would move that by bending the handle down on the back and shifting the rocker arm so that it didn't pick up dirt anymore, but it would slide or dance and go to the place where that you were going. So it was hard when you loaded the dirt, then it was easier when you pulled the dirt down the trail. And then it was not that hard to dump it because all you had to do was convert it back from one to the other and then let the bar go, which then went over the top and the dirt dumped right there. And you kept the hitch long enough that the bar, which was about six feet long, seven feet long in the back, then bent to the side, did not hit the team of horses. Right. All right. So my father still has this, and we have it hooked up with a chain behind the tractor, and I'm nine years old. Maybe we should say one thing here. It was not unusual for children, children, to drive machinery back in our youth. Oh, yeah. No doubt. We learned to drive early. We were labor. You know, our children, our parents had us as labor. They didn't have us as a uh, act of pure procreation. I'm convinced of that, Gene. <laughs> so we have this Fresno, and we had an old barn that had been brought in from Indiana, uh, torn down in Indiana, brought to Oklahoma, and put back up. It was all walnut. And wow. uh, we uh, began to tear it down, and then we got rid of everything but the base and there were rats. There were lots of rats in that area. We had a really good rat dog and we would just open it up enough that he would be able to kill every rat that ran out. So that in itself was somewhat of amusing. That was the entertainment. So after we got the, the all of that done, uh, every night we would go down. Dad had an off-farm job before it was fashionable. And um, every night we would go down there after supper and we would start moving of that composted manure out of there and move it out onto the garden. And everything in that area was sandy. It was black soil originally. Then the hills washed off down to the red clay and the sand lay on the bottoms. So you had some good dirt, but it was way down. So you had to put a lot of uh, nutrients into that sand if you're going to grow anything. And manure was about as good as you could get. Right. So we kept laying that in there. We finally, after, I don't know, it must have been a month, finished up all of that handling of dirt, of manure and dirt, and we slicked off that area real nice. Well, Dad decided that one end of the garden really needed to have some Bermuda grass on top of it. And for northerners who don't understand Bermuda grass, it grows uh, with runners, and it's tough, and uh, it'll spread. So if you just get a little bit of Bermuda grass, it's not very long until it's covered an area. And of course, it's prevented erosion, which was exactly what we were after. So we go out to the road. My dad having this brilliant idea, he dug a little trench uh, crossways of where we were going to go with that, uh, with a shovel. He was really good with a shovel. I was supposed to drive up with that Fresno, and then we were going to hook in under that sod right there. We're going to peel that sod out and we're going to haul it up and we're going to dump it on the corner of the garden that has uh, sandy land with manure on it. Sounded real good. I did exactly the same thing every time. My father was a difficult man to deal with. And if you didn't do it his way, then you had him yelling, screaming, cussing, uh, all kinds of issues with him. 
that he never got over. So we came up to that. I stopped the tractor. I put it in first gear. This was an MT John Deere. Mm -hmm. And I started moving forward, looking forward to make sure I went straight. Well, I know we had gone by that little niche that he had dug out of that sod so that the blade of that Fresno would bite in there. And I heard this, oh, 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 coming back there. And I looked back and the Fresno had not dug in. It had bit and started going up. Well, he was a hold of that bar way at the back to give the leverage to make it bite. But it wasn't, it was biting, but it wasn't moving. So he was like a pole vaulter in the air, about seven feet in the air and screaming loudly. So I put my foot in on the clutch like you normally did. For sure. And it rolled backward. Mm Mm-hmm. It rolled backward. That meant that he was seven feet up. And now on a quarter circle, he went down to the ground. So boom, (laughs) he hit the ground on his back. I didn't put my foot on the brake because I was nine years old. I don't think I could even reach the brake and the clutch at the same time. He got up and there was this red, mad look on his face. And he started running at me. And I'm about, I don't know, 20 feet in front of him. I immediately stood up on the seat in great fear because he was just that volatile a man. But about 10 feet after he started running after me, he had had the wind knocked out of his lungs when he hit the ground. So he ran out of air and he got to the wheel of the tractor and collapsed, which, you know, scared me to death. But at the same time, I think saved my life. I'll say you're relieved. <laughs> so here I am. And so he, he was on his hands and knees, getting his lungs to refunction, you know, to get air in them. And by the time he got up, he wasn't mad anymore. And uh, we didn't, we went back to the house immediately. But I told that story at his funeral to the delight of all of his friends who had seen him in some version of that same mentality. (laughs) But it was all because of this damn machine that, you know, there's, there's a, there was a tumble bug that came out from, I think we had one behind the Ferguson. Do you remember what a tumble bug was? Well, we never did have one, but I've heard of them. And I don't think it was the same thing. It was the same thing, except it was all, done by a lever and you sat on the seat of a tractor and there wasn't a man back there on a bar. Uh, And so it was the next step in this mechanization and something that certainly was an improvement. The one thing I would have to say, Gene, and I'd love your opinion on this is if anything has moved in a straight line forward in development, it's been farm machinery that we have continued to buy that which was developed to allow us to cover more acres do a better job, uh, be more efficient, make more money. Or at least attempt to make more money. <laughs> okay, you're a farmer. You never make money. You never make money. I had a guy call me on AgriTalk one time. He said, I've been farming for 50 years, and only one year did I make any money. That's right. I kept asking him, how did you farm for 50 years if you made no money? Well, he only made the amount of money he thought he should make one year. That's what it all came down to. Oh, okay. Hey, talk to, talk to me about... 
the mechanization. I'm sorry I've been in areas you didn't didn't have much concept of, and I'm glad you didn't. But in the area of harvesting equipment, in harvesting grain, you talked about a little three foot wide combine. That has been a progression forward that is unbelievable in its pathway of how much we can harvest today. But we actually started getting some pretty decent machines coming, what, by the mid-40s? Uh, some of them, uh, you know, hit about the late 40s, I think. The Alice Chalmers All Crop was one of the, uh, oh, I, I think one of the more common ones around in our part of the country. Uh, John Deere had one that was pretty popular, I think. And they were, they were five-foot cut, six-foot cut machines. Uh, that was a leap up from the first ones that were three. Uh, so, you know, you made some progress and you could, it would, you could pull it. See, the problem, Ken, is you didn't have enough horsepower yeah. to, to run anything much bigger than that because, uh, you know, a 45 horsepower tractor was called a big tractor. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it would handle that five foot cut combine with enough horsepower to cut, you know, 35, 40 bushel wheat. And so that was kind of a limiting factor, but nevertheless, there was a great progression, you know, over the years after that, in the mid fifties, uh, self-propelled combines became more uh, common. Massey Harris uh, was, I think, an innovator in that area. Uh, they, they probably had more combines out there than anybody in, in that era. And that was a combination of putting some, engine power with the, with the cutter bar, it, they was pretty, pretty basic. It, 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 it had a kind of a belt drive that you could vary the speed of it a little bit. Uh, but it wasn't the most durable in the world. And of course there was no cabs. Yeah. You oh no, that was, that was totally inappropriate. Really? Oh yeah. You couldn't have a cab. That's, that's ridiculous. I mean, be inside. We, so you had to set up there in front, right up, right behind the reel and let the chap and dirt hit you in the face. Yeah. We had a guy come to our farm and cut wheat uh, in the 1960s who had a 1946 Massey Harris combine. Yep. And he claimed it was the first year that Massey Harris had uh, built that machine. And he and his family were just, they were mechanics and they, they delighted in keeping things running. And uh, he was a little man who wore a, uh, Cowboy hat, I remember that. Cowboy hats weren't really big in work where I lived. And he would be a black man by the time he got through with the day because oh, yeah. he just covered you with dirt. Um, <laughs> and that was the norm, and that was what you breathed in. And you wonder why these people might have died young. It wasn't from hard work. It was from what they sucked into their lungs or what they were exposed to otherwise. But those combines did the job, and... Uh, and of course, adding that into, in my area, varieties of wheat that were earlier maturing. There was one developed by a man by the name of Joseph Danny that was called Early Triumph. You could cut it earlier in the season. And we had a neighbor once who had a brand new pole type combine and his wheat wasn't ready yet. And he called my dad and he said, can I come over here and tune up my combine on your field? Dad only had like 20 acres of wheat that year. Mostly we were in alfalfa at that time. And so dad said, yeah. So Emil Vorl, a wonderful man, came over with that combine 
and he harvested that wheat. And the next day we had a hell of a thunderstorm and everybody else's wheat went down, but yeah. ours was already in the bin. Yeah. And just a day, Gene, made a world of difference on that wheat on whether you got it harvested or not. Absolutely. Early triumph. Uh, I remember my dad went out somewhere in central Kansas and bought the seed wheat for early triumph to get it grow here. Yeah, it was tall. It was way too tall. You know, the semi dwarfs didn't come out for another 30 years, but right. it was uh, it was what they had at the time. And it, it was so much better than turkey red, as I recall, was the wheat before that that had a lot of smut in it. Uh, but again, I'm drifting off machinery. I guess we ought to jump into the modern day pretty soon. But hay balers, did you bale a lot of hay as a kid? Uh, that We had the hay baler for the neighborhood. At that time, everybody had 160 acres, 20 cows, uh, 20 sows, and, and that's the way they farmed. And so, but we had the hay baler. And so every neighbor around us that would have hay down, we'd go bale the hay. And at, at first, we didn't, we just dropped the hay bales on the ground, and then you had to pick them up, square bales, little square yep. bales. Our first uh, baler was an international and I don't remember the number of it. I, I want to say 46, but it had a was it had an engine on it, a Continental six-cylinder motor that uh, was pretty temperamental. And if it got hot, and invariably you're bailing hay on one of those 95-degree days, and uh, a little bit of chaff get radiator, and that thing would get hot, it'd just die. Mm. And, of course, it was can crank, and <laughs> Dad would crank on that thing, until he just blew in the face, red in the face. And when I knew that he'd reached his limit, when he reached up and grabbed his straw hat, threw it about a quarter mile. Because <laughs> that thing just wouldn't start in vapor lock or whatever. So, you know, I remember, uh, you know, there were a lot of summers in, in those years and we made an upgrade to a New Holland 76 with a Wisconsin air-cooled motor. Woo! And that thing just purred. And every time that plunger went back and the big old flywheel come around, that governor would open up on that Wisconsin motor. And, you know, you could hear it 10 miles away. Mm -hmm. But it would really chuck out the hay bales. Now, the tying system on those earlier New Holland balers was not really sophisticated in that uh, you're supposed to make a bale that was maybe like five foot long, well, they would make one that was seven foot, and then you'd put a three. <laughs> and if you, and so if you're trying to stack those bales on a wagon, you had to kind of get them paired up, you know. I, uh, you know, everything you're saying, I relate to. I'll take you back one more generation again. Poor folks with poor ways. Beginning in the late '30s on through part of the '40s, my parents had a stationary baler, uh -huh. and they were still bucking up the the hay they would cut it with a sickle then they would run a rake through it that would basically gather it and they would bring it over and then they would dump it into the baler and it was a group effort it was like threshing except it was baling right they had wooden blocks that they would insert into the baler uh and then that plunger would push that on through and then you would hand tie around that. Have you ever seen that? I I haven't. I I it was just a little bit before my time here, but I know my dad talked about it all the time and how a dusty job it was to be there and 
And those are wire tie males. They weren't twine. Yeah. At least well, here. wire was so much easier because you could twist it. Right. Uh, with twine, you'd have to knot it, and you weren't capable of that with gloves on or anything that, that they had at the time. And they would just, they basically covered themselves entirely right. before they started doing this. Right. And they would sit there, and there was a fan that they, it was actually part of the baler that blew air down on you. And so it, it turned above you, and it blew better air from above down on you, but it just swirled the dust. You know, it didn't really take it out of there. Exactly. They would put those blocks in and they had to keep that. And it was a two person operation. One guy on one side pushed the wire through on both ends. The other person then tied it. And then you went on to the next one. And then of course the bale comes out the back. Somebody has got to handle the bale. So you've got people putting hay, gathering hay, people putting hay in, people bailing and people pulling hay out. So from that, the pickup baler that you drove across the field with was a huge advancement. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, um, from those balers of early on, when did the big square and round balers? I know when the round balers came out, it's when I went to college because they told us Nobody is going to work for us anymore. We're going to have to quit raising hay because all you boys are leaving. Uh-huh. And the day we, and so the day we went to college, they bought a round baler. <laughs> well, my memory of it is that we evolved from the square balers into a, a Alice Shamas Roto baler, which was a small round baler uh, that I uh, earned my keep on. Uh, not just bailing for our own farm there, but I custom bailed for the neighborhood. And uh, that's how I made my money to go through college in 1959, mm-hmm. 63, mm-hmm. uh, is making little round bales. And I, we bought the, I think the very last little round baler in 1960 or 61. And uh, that's when the big balers were coming out. And uh, we said, well, that'll never, that'll never be successful. It's just too big to handle. And again, the limiting factor, we didn't have a tractor big enough to pick up the big bale. Yeah, yeah. So you had to address that, and uh, yeah. people did. They put a stinger on the back and yep. one on the front. Yep, that's right. Now we carry two at a time, never think about it. Yeah. I always love the people going down the road with that uh, bale spear down. Yeah. Know, pointing <laughs> at your radiator. <laughs> Get your attention. <laughs> well, the big ground balers were... A major factor, Vermeer probably was the company that came out with them, although I yeah. recall doing some agri-talk shows and people would call in claiming Vermeer stole their patent and on and on and on. But whoever it was, that's what happened. Interestingly, now in the cotton pickers, round bales at the back of them are the key to the modern success of a cotton picker. You know, I saw some of those for the first time here about four or five years ago. Uh, we were driving across southern Kansas, uh, out toward uh, Greenfield, and I think around Greenfield is where it was. And there was a lot of those big round cotton bales, and I thought they were all supposed to be in loafs, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that that seemed to really take off now. Of course, those things are a little pricey. Oh, they're they're almost a million dollars. The new That's ones, right. I think, are almost a million dollars, maybe more than that. But you know, you said. Cotton in Kansas. Do you realize the incongruity of that statement? I know. It sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, the Yokies moved north. 
Well, that's because there's better places to go, you know. We were six inches from starvation. We had to do something else. But actually, that's not what happened. I was in Kansas in a period about 1981 to uh, 1987. And a guy contacted me from down close to the southern border of the state. And he said, we're growing cotton. And I said, why? He said, well, the boll weevil has wiped out a bunch of the people in the southern part of the country, and they are selling their cotton gins for junk. So he said, junk prices, and they're decent. So we brought one up here, put it together, made it work. And he said, we are now growing cotton up here because we don't have the insect pressure that they had. And uh, they also have been breeding short season cotton to get away from the boll weevil. So we're using it too. The biggest problem was they had no herbicides that were registered for cotton. And they had to go through the process of that. But they started growing cotton then. I told them, yeah, I understand you've got a contract with Bayer for the uh, cotton to go in the aspirin bottles because that's about as much cotton as they were producing. (laughs) But they they kept doing it and uh, have been successful at it. But, of course, in the real cotton country, the key to producing cotton was these modules that they dumped out of the cotton picker into the module. This is seed cotton. And then they had to go pick that up. But to get to the round baler again, the concept now is that you run the cotton through the picker and you then put it into this very big and heavy round bale that can not only be made, but it can haul one while it's making one. And so their fields are generally not such that you're going to make more than a bale in one pass. So you haul that extra bale and then you drop it at the end of the field. And then you turn around and you make the next bale and you drop it at the end of the field. And if you make more than one, you still got room for it. And they never have to do anything except haul round bales out of their field now into the gin. Saves a whole step. It's another step that's saved, just like no-till, just like uh, the other things that we're doing. Planters. What do you think of planters changing technology there? Uh, well, they've changed dramatically, obviously. Uh, I still base, I still have in the fence row a uh, little two-row uh, horse-drawn corn planter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has uh, steel wheels on the, on the back that goes that it's kind of B-shaped where, as it turns, it kind of firms the soil around the runner mm-hmm. where it drops the seed. I used to plant sweet corn, actually, until probably the 1970s. It actually worked, uh, not very well, but I didn't want to plant a big sweet corn patch anyway. But, anyway, it, it used a plate that turned, and it used, again, sprockets and chains mm-hmm. to drive it. It worked, but it was a poor excuse for a planter uh, in many respects. But they, they, they were improved a great deal. Uh, the plate planter stayed around, though, for a long time until, I i don't know, our first uh, non-plate planter was a John Deere 7000 series, I believe, that used uh, discs and uh, metered so much more precisely. And uh, then the openers were changed from a runner to a double disc, uh, and again, to go into a more of a no-till type of scenario where you don't have to have a lot of loose dirt. Uh, in order to get a nice uh, seed bed uh, for the seed environment itself. So they that, that technology of the runner and the metering system changed. And then, then along comes the air planter. 
Now, International pioneered that. I'll give them credit for the first cyclo-planner that actually used air pressure driven by a hydraulic motor that would uh, uh, actually, the, the seed would go into a little dip in a drum and that as that drum turned, it would the air pressure would shoot that seed down a tube uh, down to the where the, to the runner at that point or the double disc opener. And so that was kind of an early technology for that. And I would say that was in the 90s. Uh, that we had one of those early, early nights, maybe late 80s. What do you think of John Deere's new planter that picks up the seed with a brush and carries it and will drop it and can plant effectively at 10 miles an hour? Uh, that is uh, obviously dramatic technology. And uh, there's others that have tried to uh, make a similar type of units, but you know, the speed of that seed is, uh, I don't know you could clock it, you know, <laughs> uh, but it would be extremely fast. But you're dropping 30, 35,000 seeds per acre, uh, and, you know, you've got a 12 or 16 or 24-row planter. Uh, there's a few of them bigger than that, obviously, some 36 or 48 rows, if you're in the right geography. The hang-up to that, as I see it, and this is just from an old guy's experience of farming here in kind of territorial, not flat country, is that uh, if you're driving that fast, you better have one smooth piece of ground. Yeah. Uh, well, that to me is the limiting factor. The limiting factor in many cases where we grew up was was ditches uh, and a short row and yeah. rough fields <laughs> because we didn't we didn't have the means to work them down as smooth as you're saying. An alfalfa field, when you got it ready to plant, was the smoothest we ever had it. And we would run over that time and time again. And, of course, we firmed it so much. Uh, Now you do that, you compact them so much, I would think. Absolutely, because you got a lot of weight uh, that's going over that ground at the same time. The bigger the unit, and they try to compensate with tracks or flotation tires and duals and triples and those kind of things, but you still end up with a certain amount of, you've just got to get back and forth out there. So that becomes a limiting factor. And uh, everybody's trying to address it though. And I found found various methods to do it. Uh, You know, you particularly get into it, what we call a conservation till or no-till environment. Uh, It's awfully hard to have a tabletop smooth surface to run on. Uh, now, granted, uh, suspended cabs and suspended front axles on tractors and uh, hydraulic down pressure systems on the planters and electronic controls of all of that uh, help to minimize the impact. But the key to a good plant stand is a uniform depth that you set, depending on your environmental conditions. But you need to have a, a, a uniform depth because the key to high yields is for that seed to emerge uniformly down the row. You don't want one coming up here and another one coming up two feet down the row. You want them to all come up at the same time. I have hung around with these high yield farmers and listened to them talk at conventions. They talk about their planter as their most important piece of equipment. None of them brag about planting at 10 miles an hour, by the way. That's right. Uh, but they do salute the fact that the machinery continues to evolve. 
but they very much want every seed to come up within 24 hours. Exactly. No, no matter how long it takes it to come up, they all should come up at the same time. Right. And they have uh, done a lot of studies where you go out and you put green flags up on every, every sprout. And that's one day. Then the next day where you have a plant, but you don't have a flag, you put a red flag up. And then the third day you put a yellow flag up and then they go back to them and find that those up the first day are by far the highest producing. They all have a, an ear of corn and it's a full ear of corn. The second day, some of them have an ear of corn, but it's smaller. And they claim the ones that come up on the third day never have an ear of corn on them. Yep. It's amazing how that works out. Wow. We've got plenty of stuff to talk again, which I would love to do. In fact, I'd love to just recreate AgriShop in some manner uh, over this mechanism and see how it goes. But, you know, the callers that we got through the years, and we can finish up with my and your years of AgriShop. Those were some of the most interesting, fun people I've ever talked to. Absolutely. I had guys call in just for the fun of calling in. I had other people who were very diligent in wanting to sell a piece of equipment. I had a guy that called me for a year with a round baler before we ever got it sold. (laughs) That's right. But some other pieces, I'm sure you can relate to this, they would mention it and somebody called them back in five minutes and they sold it. It happened to me. And it didn't make a difference how far away it was. It could be two or 300 miles, no problem. Yeah. Well, the High Plains Journal, the magazine in Western Kansas, they claim farmers will go 800 miles to buy a piece of machinery. Uh, Right now, I think they'll go a lot more than that when they're buying and selling on the internet. Well, you're probably right. But I'm not sure that part of that wasn't a mama's vacation. You know, let's take the trailer. (laughs) Let's go pick up a piece of machinery uh, somewhere south of here. Uh, in the wintertime. I think that 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 was a factor, but it is amazing what farmers will do to find what they're looking for. Gene, to finish up with you, it has been a delight to talk with you today. Uh, I I salute you for all your years in broadcasting and what you did to serve agriculture. And then I salute you again for taking on AgriShop Saturday morning and making it into a real program. It was a lot of fun. You know, I've been off of that now for three years, and people still say, when are you going to go back? Maybe you should. Gene Millard, longtime manager of KFEQ Radio, farm broadcaster on radio and television in the same market before then, longtime friend of mine and uh, accomplice when we were both in the National Farm Broadcaster's uh, headquarters office in uh, Platte City, Missouri, and uh, see each other whenever we can, and we can both walk at uh, NAFB conventions, and I hope to see you again this fall. Well, you're walking better than I am, but we hope to see you. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. I hope you stayed awake for most of it and liked what you heard. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send an email to ken at betterthannothing.com. Nothing is spelled N-U-T-H-I-N. If you can't remember that, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. 
As I now turn 73 years old, I've decided to have two kinds of days, good ones and great ones. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.